before you can think about anything else to do with it being a career, the first thing you need to do is go and do something interesting. And of course, somehow you need to come up with a good idea and you need to cobble together money long before anyone cares enough about you to actually give you any money. Welcome to Deviate with Rolf Potts. Today, travel writer Alistair Humphreys comes back on the show. You might recall back in episode 66 of Deviate, he talked about seeking to live a more adventurous life. This time, he comes back to talk about making a living as an adventurer, which is the topic of his latest book, Ask an Adventurer, which came out last summer. Al has done things like bicycle around the world and row across the Atlantic Ocean. He's also pioneered the art of taking what he calls micro-adventures close to home. Together, we talk about how he came to be a working adventurer and how technology has changed the task of telling adventure stories in the past two decades. We talk about how adventure these days gets mixed in with self-promotion and taking pains to record your adventure for an audience. We talk about how to attract sponsors and whether or not sponsors are even worth the effort. We talk about how to use social media and email newsletters to promote your adventures and build your brand. And we talk about how self-publishing your own books rather than seeking traditional publishers can sometimes be a smart move. Ten minutes into the conversation, Al forgets part of the question I just asked him, and then I forget it too. I suggest that we edit that part out of the interview, but Al makes the case for leaving it in since part of his task in giving people a glimpse into his career is revealing the occasional imperfections. I start by asking Al to define what it means when he talks about being an adventurer. Let's listen in. Your book is Ask an Adventurer. Um, I should, since adventure is often used as a metaphor as much as a description, I should probably have you clarify what that means. What do you mean by adventure when you say ask an adventurer? <laughs> um, I think I mean different things on different days when I'm talking to different people. If that hmm. doesn't sound like a classic politician's answer. <laughs> right. um, but in terms of the book, I suppose what I mean is that I consider myself an adventurer in that I go off and do adventurous things, some of them involving, say, travel, some of them involving pushing my curiosity, for example, uh, playing the violin very badly uh, to try and pay for a hike through Spain. Mm -hmm. um, so, so the actual what I count as adventure doesn't really matter too much. The part in terms of this book is really to do with rather than just being someone who enjoys adventures as a hobby, I'm someone who's tried to turn it into my job. And therefore, that aspect of adventurer requires me to tell stories, to communicate, to produce material content stories, and to put them out to an audience in order, hopefully, to earn enough money to pay for me to go off and do the next adventure, whatever that may be. And how long have you been doing this? How long would you say that adventurer is your job description? <laughs> yeah, it's. I'm starting to feel quite old for such a ridiculous sounding job. But I, um, I finished university and I decided to cycle around the world. And when I set off to cycle around the world, I was um, blogging and writing stories and taking photos. I wasn't yet earning any money from it, but I was doing the storytelling and I was doing the adventure. I just wasn't yet earning any money from it. And cycling around the world... Uh, I set off two weeks before September 11th so in 2001. Mm. So, um, yeah, that was a pretty memorable um, upturn or, or not upturn, a, a memorable event that right at the very big start of my big adventure, which put everything into some degree of chaos. 
And gosh, that was really at the beginning of blogging too. Um, well, it wasn't even called blogging then. Mm. So I, I had a fledgling website and about every month or so I would find an internet cafe if you, for those old enough to remember those things. Yeah. And I would uh, type up what I'd been doing in the last month and email it to some person in England. And then they would every so often upload it to my website. So I, I did about an update a month hmm. all the way cycling around the world. And I now consider myself a keen photographer, but photos were a real hassle. Hmm. So my website for the first year and a bit cycling the whole length of Africa, I uploaded nine photographs, <laughs> uh, which is just astonishing to the modern day blogger and content producer, isn't it? Well, it's interesting how technologically specific this all is, uh, because when you wrote about those times in internet cafes and the, the little ping sound of the dial-up connection, I think oh, yes. your, your career and mine started about the same time. And so now that's, that's sort of an old man, you know, recollection, right, you know, of the dial-up internet era. And you also talk about, you know, passing an afternoon reading uh, a long novel or something as opposed to interfacing with your phone. So how has technology over the course of the past two decades changed the task of what it's like to be a professional adventurer? It's been a profound change. And perhaps I'm looking at my life with some sort of rose-tinted glasses, but I feel that I've just hit the perfect time for what I do. And by that, I mean that I set off before technology was ubiquitous. So essentially, I spent four years cycling around the world with not much internet connection and therefore all the freedom and immersion that that experience gives you but then when i came home and started trying to build a career in order to build a career you need to first of all build an audience and you need to build you need to have interesting material uh, so by now i had some interesting material i just needed to find an audience and along come all these fledgling things like blogging and twitter and facebook and suddenly the ways that i could reach an audience were so easy and prolific. So I, f I feel very, very lucky in terms of trying to make this my career that there are now all these incredible ways of communicating. Uh, one of which, of course, is you and I talking across separate continents and you'll be able to press a couple of buttons and share this to anyone on any other continent, uh, all for free or for very little money. It's pretty magical and privileged, really. Yeah, I'm, I'm, it's morning time for me. There's snow on the ground and uh, it's it's afternoon time for you. And uh, apparently the weather's nice and sunny. So uh, yeah, something that probably would not have happened uh, 20 years ago. Um, for for people in my audience who might not have the privilege of being raised uh, in the dial-up internet era and sort of <laughs> sort of grow with technology, um, how does one handle the task of becoming an adventurer uh, in this day and age? And actually, uh, part of that should probably be the definition: Why should you should you even become a professional adventurer, or should you just save your money and go for some nice trips a couple times a year? Okay. Well, a, um, a mountaineer from about 100 years ago called Bill Tillman, whose eccentric books I love, when people asked him, how do I go on an expedition? He would say, lace up your boots and go. Hmm. And I think there's a, a truth to that today, which in terms of adventure and travel is that before you can think about anything else to do with it being a career, the first thing you need to do is go and do something interesting. And of course, somehow you need to come up with a good idea and you need to cobble together money, 
long before anyone cares about, enough about you to actually give you any money. So somehow you have to earn some money. You have to go do something cheap, exciting and interesting. Be an adventurer. Go vagabonding. Uh, go do something that marks you out as a little bit different somehow. And then come home and start to tell the story. Um, I think there was another aspect to your question that I've forgotten. Sorry. Um, Can you repeat your question? Yeah, well, uh, actually, I, I, that's, uh, I'm going to cut this part out because I forgot to question myself, but I was... <laughs> that's like, leave this part in. This is the best part of podcasts. It's two, <laughs> two normal people talking to each other. Right. Okay. Well, my, my listeners will rewind, which I don't have the luxury of doing here right okay. now. Um, but yeah, I guess... Um, you sort of answered in, in in what what does it look like? Well, is it even worth it to 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 do it for a living? Uh huh. Yes. Versus just um, just going off and and sort of having adventures. It sounds like maybe there's there's sort of a a, a dovetail to that. You sort of have to start by doing it for fun or by doing it out of passion, and then either it becomes professional or it doesn't. Yes. Yeah. That was that was your question. I remember now. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, first of all, I went and had an adventure because I wanted to have an adventure. Um, I also wanted to write a book purely because I love reading books and I was interested in the idea of writing a book. I didn't have any unrealistic expectations that I'd actually be able to earn much money from a book. It was just something I wanted to do. So, and all of that is very well and good. And perhaps what I should have done is come home and become a I don't know, a investment banker or something and insisted that I work for nine months a year and then they give me three months off each year. Or I become a high school teacher and I don't earn as much, but I have the long vacations to go traveling. And that would be an equally valid and in many ways, much easier way to go and have great adventures all around the world. The key thing is somehow you need to buy yourself the time to have the adventures. And it doesn't really matter how you do that. Um, you might choose to earn money directly from what adventures by becoming a tour guide or a, a mountaineering coach or something like that. But I just personally, I really enjoy the work side of what I do. I enjoy the storytelling, the chats, the writing, the photography, trying to put all of this together and package it up somehow. Um, I enjoy all the internet stuff, this sort of behind the scenes internet work. Um, I enjoy all of those aspects which have now become the work element of what I do. And uh, I spend far more time actually doing those work things than actually on the adventures that are at the tip of the iceberg. And does that work usually happen in the home office or is that, uh, are you sort of pre-planning? Uh, obviously you, you do to an extent, but how much time in the field is dedicated to having the adventure versus recording the adventure? Uh, yes. Well, yeah, this is a whole big topic of the impact that trying to document an adventure has on the adventure itself. And I, I'll talk through a few little stages of it. So when I set off to cycle around the world, I wanted to have the adventure. I also wanted to write. So that meant I, I did adventurous stuff in the day, traveling around. And then in the evening, I'd sit down and write my diary when I was in my tent. And later on, years later, I came home and I wrote that down. Um, more recently, I walked through the empty quarter desert in um, Arabia. And the, the aim of that trip was the film that I wanted to make about it. That to me felt more important than the actual adventure. So hmm. yes, there was the adventure, man walking through desert, but very much big part of that was me thinking hard about 
where am I going to put my camera? What angles am I going to take? How will this edit together into a story? So that completely changes the experience. For me personally, that didn't make the experience worse because I loved the photography and the filming part of it. And I loved the uh, internal conversations about how this might turn into a, a story later on. So in many ways, it complemented the journey, but it certainly very, very, very much changed the journey. And I think if people are interested in doing this, they have to really bear in mind what's their priority. Is your priority the adventure? Is your priority the story at the end of it? Um, or do you somehow want to get a balance between mm. the two, which will inevitably involve some degree of compromise on both the purity of the adventure and probably the output of the film? And that's a great thing about writing, um, of course, is that you just scribble down your diaries and then years later or months later, you come home and write it all up and make yourself sound as heroic as you'd like to make yourself sound. <laughs> that, that's true. When I, I started writing in the dial-up era of the internet and and what had previously, like for magazines, been a couple of months lag time, you know, I could very quickly get my work up um, on you know, um, magazine websites or my own website. Um, and now it's that, that feedback loop is very small. And so I'm, I'm curious, do you miss that pre-professional travel aspect or have, has the sort of this new media and planning aspect of, of, of the journey dovetailed to the point where you don't even think about it that much? Well, whilst on my trips, I, acknowledge that I need nowadays to take some photos and or do some filming. I'm, I, I'm aware of that and I accept that. Sometimes it's a compromise, sometimes it's a delight. Whilst I accept those things, what I still really try to push back against is not communicating those stories live to the internet whilst I'm out there. I really try very hard to live an offline life when I'm having the adventure just to maximize my immersion in the experience and then when I come home later then I write up the story and perhaps let's say for simplicity I go for a week-long hike somewhere I'll take lots of photos and I'll write stuff I don't post any of it when I come home I will then post a photo a day and a story a day as though the trip is happening then even though it's delayed and I'm just back in my office telling stories so I try as much as I can to separate the adventuring from the storytelling and sharing and that's purely because i want to maximize how immersed i am in the travel experience itself and i think that trying to tell stories online whilst you're off doing something else is a compromise that i don't really like is there a pressure to always feed the narrative to always seem like you're on an adventure and how do you how do you manage that there is a pressure. I suspect really that it is a self-imposed pressure. I don't really think my audience cares that much what I'm doing as long as when I do pop up on their screens that I'm doing something interesting. Hmm. Now, of course, there are all the algorithms at work from the big social media giants who want you to be updating regularly and therefore favor you in their algorithms if you do so rather than just trying to pop up intermittently um, and the same sort the same rules apply with trying to produce say, newsletters or podcasts if you stop for a while your audience will dwindle so there is there is some pragmatic pressure uh, but mostly i feel it to be a self-imposed pressure and this i see as one of the real downsides of choosing to turn my hobby into my career is I then feel a 
a work pressure on myself to always be interesting and that I'm only as interesting or as relevant as my next big adventure. And over over the years, I've often put that pressure on myself quite a lot. And I think that's a something to pay attention to and to be slightly wary of if you are interested in going down this route, because I don't like it. I don't like feeling that I'm pressurized to have an adventure and pressurized to be interesting and pressurized to show off online about how wonderful my life is. I don't like that aspect of it. Well, the fact that you can do that, the fact that you have an option to do that now just shows how things have changed in the last 20 years. We've also had this new word come up in the last 20 years, last 10 years probably, influencer. What do you make of that word and do you consider yourself one? Oh, well, it's just a little bit of vomit came up into my throat at the thought of the word. Um, <laughs> um, I really... I really don't like the word at all. And yet I also acknowledge that I very much am one and that in recent years, I've started to earn a chunk of my money from companies paying me to do stuff or wear stuff or eat stuff and then tell people about it. So I've become, in some senses, an advertiser for things, something which would never have crossed my mind when I just set out on a bicycle or in a pair of boots. So I don't really like the word, but I think there are also positive ways to look at it. In, For example, I do now have a moderate-sized audience online. Certainly, I have enough of an audience to earn a living from it. And regardless of the size of the audience, what I do have that's really useful is I have a really interested audience, a really interested audience in the small little niche of the world that I do. And there are people who really enjoy the same sort of stuff I do, who follow what I do. And therefore, being an influencer can be a fantastic positive force if you use that audience, if you use that uh, platform to encourage people to do good stuff in life, whether that's to go and have wholesome, low carbon adventures or to do whatever it is in your niche. So I try to remember that being an influencer can be a really, really positive thing if I choose to put my work in that direction. Well, let's talk about the the nuts and bolts of this, Um, you know, particularly since you've amassed your audience. I think the cliche of the the influencer is someone who's performing a life that's better on screen than it is in real life, and it sort of gets wearying. Um, So let's talk about um, whether or not you want to call yourself an influencer, and let's just say you aren't, you're, you're sort of a different monster. Let's talk about what it's like to maintain this professionally without faking your life or going crazy. Um, so, and let's start with the topic of sponsors, because I think a lot of people dream of sponsors and like the idea of having sponsors because it seems or feels easier than just saving up money and going, uh, in your book, you mentioned you've worked with, um, Land Rover, Adidas, Visit Britain, Single Malt, Scotch companies. How do you attract, uh, sponsors and what sort of advice would you give, not just in attracting sponsors, but sort of in managing them and, um, you know, sort of staying true to your own ethos while you are working with, uh, companies? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Interestingly, when I started, I really needed sponsors. You know, I really needed good kit and I really needed cash. So I spent a lot of time when I started out writing to companies saying, please sponsor me. I really need your help. The trouble being, of course, that back then I hadn't done anything interesting and therefore sponsors weren't that interested in me. Uh, Now that later on, I now earn enough money in my life and I've got plenty of 
outdoor gear and bicycles and stuff. So I don't really need them. And yet now they're more likely to come to me and ask to work with me, which I see as one of life's great unfairnesses. But hey ho, I can see how that is. So um, what a, the the challenge really is to get the balance between greed, just thinking, oh, wow, I'm going to get some free stuff. This is cool. Um, between vanity of, oh, wow, I'm working with this brand. This will make me look really important and also might attract other similar companies to be interested, which can be a useful thing. Um, you also need to balance up the freedom of it. So if, if these people sponsor me, great, but how much do they want from me? How much pound of flesh do they want? Do they want me to be sending Instagram stories every five minutes saying, hmm, I love cheese, uh, <laughs> when perhaps that's going to compromise my adventure and the experience itself? Uh, you also need to think, what will the audience think of me? You know, I'm, is it right that I'm claiming to be a carefree, wandering hobo out having a lovely adventure if I'm doing so in a Gucci sun hat that cost $500? So there's a lot of different aspects to consider. Overall, I would say that the benefits outweigh the disadvantages um, in that you're getting stuff that's useful for your journey. You might be getting some money. Uh, what I think people undervalue is how much that brand might help you growing your audience. So hmm. if you find a sponsor, you really want to say to them, what are you guys going to do to tell my story to your audience? You're, it's, a, it's a mutually interested audience, but I generally find that sponsors don't really do much of that aspect. So that's something that I think is worth uh, encouraging a bit more if you go into it and then also just always balance up it is what on is what they're offering here better overall than me just going to get a job for three hours an evening in the local bar and buying the gear i need on ebay hmm. and hmm. buying a plane ticket myself and you have to really balance up is it actually better of course it sounds glamorous and great but i don't think that is necessarily as good as it seems yeah it's a funny catch-22 you bring up about how when you're a beginner you actually need all of this equipment um i had a friend who worked on some political initiatives with arnold schwarzenegger years ago and people would just send him stuff all the time he wasn't asking for things but people wanted arnold to wear his shirts and use their computers and things like that um whereas the young adventurers or the you know the people who need actually need this stuff aren't in a position to um to ask for it so obviously you have to go in and fund your own adventures at the beginning once you have a little bit of a following and a little bit of expertise um how do you approach sponsors um do you do you just walk into the pepsi headquarters and and um ask for the president or um how does this work? Because obviously a lot of people would love to have their adventures sponsored. What are the nuts and bolts for actually getting a sponsorship? Well, I think the key thing is remembering that a lot of people would like to get their adventures sponsored, as you just said. So how can you be different? If you think of a company like Patagonia or the North Face or American Airlines, they're going to have a hundred emails a day saying, dear sir or madam, I'm doing this and it's really interesting and you should give me loads of money and loads of free stuff, blah, blah, blah. That's loads of people are doing that. It's not very interesting. It doesn't look like you've researched things very much. Um, Bear Grylls, who's become a world superstar, really takes 
president off on adventures. He began just like the rest of us as a, a young bum who really wanted to have a cool adventure but didn't have much cash. He wanted to climb Mount Everest. He sent emails to all the usual companies. Everyone ignored him. And then walking down the street one day, he saw some random fairly boring little company. I can't even remember what they made, but it was somebody, somebody, an Everest. Da, 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 da. And he mm, thought, aha. Mm. So he contacted this much smaller, seemingly less relevant company, but obviously it had Everest in the name. They were sufficiently curious and interested to get him in for a meeting and decided to sponsor his journey up Everest. So you need to think a bit more laterally about it. And you really need to try and find a way to make yourself stand out. So you certainly want to try and find the right name of the right person in the right department to talk to. You need to look at their social media things. How do they engage with their customers? Do they do they have a sort of nice chatty relationship on Twitter? If so, maybe that's a good way to get in touch with them. But certainly cold calling or cold, worse, cold emailing 500 companies with a copy-pasted thing is a total and utter waste of time. And everyone used to say that to me, and I still did it anyway, because it seems like the easy option, but it doesn't really work. The, 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 the final thing I'll say on that is that this isn't very helpful for someone trying to find sponsors in the early days. But in terms of me these days is I just sort of forget about them these days and just concentrate on trying to do my thing, to do interesting stuff, to tell that story well, to try and help solve my audience's problems and needs and to just keep communicating like that. And by doing that, companies who are interested in that sort of world tend to come to me, which is a, so that's to say that the long-term strategy here is don't worry too much about sponsors. Go and do your interesting, useful thing, and they will gradually come to you. Yeah, an interesting bit of advice you had is bring your map to bring a map to your sponsor meeting. Um, do you do, are there still in person sponsor meetings? Is uh, or is that um, uh, you could also ask? Are there still maps that you can carry that are made of paper? <laughs> um, but how much of this is virtual and how much of it is in person when it comes to actually having a sponsor and attracting one? Well, personally, um, generally, I mean, there's the there's the huge um, thing of the whole pandemic lurking in the Mm. middle of my Mm. answer here in that pre pandemic, um, generally what I would always do is people get in touch online. uh, You have a back and forth on the email. And then my preference in order to build a relationship and to get action going and to get a project moving would be to go to those people armed with a giant map and a big rucksack if at all possible just to be the most interesting meeting of their day Hmm. uh, and the fun you want these people to really enjoy what you're doing and to buy into your project and want to be part of it so yeah turn up with a massive map and a canoe on your shoulders good start (laughs) but of course then along comes covid and now comes Zoom and Skype calls, and we haven't quite got back to what happens next. So, of course, we can do a lot more via Zoom these days. But still, as we all know, uh, and especially anyone who likes traveling knows, you can't beat the sort of eye contact and face-to-face things mm. of you going out of your way to make an effort to show that you really care about these people, that you have done your homework, you know a lot about them, and you are really willing to work hard to give them more than you're asking for. Well, a lot of this involves these days, like you said, sort of virtual pursuits. A big one is social media. Um, What's your relationship to social media and how do you make it work for you instead of 
having it take away from your life and pursuits. Uh, and in part, uh, part I asked that question because I have a tortured relationship with social media myself. <laughs> Don't we all? I mean, we all do, really. It is, it's a wonderful thing for learning about whatever you care about. It's a great way of finding a niche audience, people who like the same things as you. It's a really useful way as a storyteller and adventure. It's a really useful way to help people. I really try and use social media as a way to put out useful content to answer people's questions to help them. I really try and be a giver on social media. And then, of course, there's all the problems of it. It's just massively addictive when you're trying to write a book. It's so much easier to check Twitter yet again. So I, this is me being a hypocrite here, is that I try and encourage people to follow me on social media because it's so useful for my work. But myself, I don't follow anyone on social media and I don't use it in any form of personal capacity. So I don't pay any attention to what my actual real friends are doing on social media. And I don't put anything on social media about my actual real life. For me, it's very much a storytelling, sharing work tool, but one in which I do try to put aside a chunk of time, not a small chunk of time, but regularly with which to engage people, to answer comments, to answer questions and to communicate with people as well. But done in tightly rationed way because otherwise you can spend your entire day just answering people's questions on twitter when what you should really do is write a book which can answer that question for lots of people yeah are there like platform specific strategies you have you you mentioned twitter and um like twitter is one of my least favorite platforms simply because i'll like put a link to my podcast and the click-throughs i think twitter likes people screaming at each other or or uh somehow fomenting conflict. Um, I'm not super successful on Twitter uh, as far as the click-throughs when I just like post an episode, for example, compared to what, if I ask a question and you know, I'll get a lot more interaction. Um, how do you manage, using Twitter as an example, how do, you, how do you manage the idiosyncrasies of that algorithm-driven approach to how so- social media works? Yeah, it's really hard because, as you say, different platforms are for different purposes. But to add another layer to that is that different platforms change over time. So eight years ago, 2014, I wrote a book called Microadventures. And the vast majority of my online success for that book came from Facebook. Facebook was Hmm. the hub of my community then, had a big, big audience. And that's where I was getting the most clicks. Um, move forward a bunch of years to ask an adventure we're talking about now. And I still have the same size of Facebook audience, but the interactions and the click-throughs are far less on there than on Instagram, which has really been the place now that's the most successful for me for getting people to actually click on something and take action. Um, And then I find Twitter the most useful place for um, trying to help with problems. So answering my community's questions, uh, sharing stuff which will help them with the things they are trying to do. And I, I'm very vague here because I think that should be equally relevant whatever sphere you're in. But for example, with me, it'll be here's advice on how to go on a camping trip. That sort of stuff I find on Twitter is where people ask the questions and appreciate the answers. But I think you're right in flagging up that you have to really pay attention that each of these platforms operates very differently and the way therefore that you communicate on them should be different. And 
the results that you are asking for are also going to be different. And you also have to bear in mind that probably someone will listen to this podcast in three years' time. It'll still be available on the internet for time to come. But in three years' time, there'll be some new hotshot social media thing that hasn't even been invented. So you need to be fluid and flexible and definitely not put all of your eggs in one social media basket. Yeah, you have a line where you say today's popular platform is tomorrow's nostalgic laughing stock. Um, yeah, my space. Right, right. And it, it really makes it feel like you have to be a constant learner. If you're going to use social media to your advantage, you always have to be willing to flex, uh, willing to change and flexible about that sort of thing. Yeah, absolutely. But, and I think, so I've moved over the last, gosh, however many, 15 years of social media, I've ebbed and flowed and moved with the, with the times, different ones. And I've worked really hard at different times in building up audiences in different ones. Um, at some point, you have to make just acknowledge that you can't spend all... Well, I choose not to spend all of my time doing that, and therefore there are some things that I will miss out on. So, for example, LinkedIn, which for some people is a really, really useful platform, I've chosen to just not engage with that. I've, I've set up... I use a website called Buffer, which automatically puts the stuff I share online automatically gets dumped onto LinkedIn. So I'm sharing a blog or two every day on LinkedIn, but I've chosen to just not engage with that platform just to save myself some time. Hmm. Similarly, Snapchat and TikTok. If I was just starting out now, I would be all over TikTok. But given that I've been doing it for a long time, I'm quite busy. I've just chosen to opt out of TikTok, even though that is the great new thing now. So you have to you have to put some boundaries in there. And then the final thing I'll say is with all of these platforms, it's really important to remember that they come and go and ebb and flow and you pour huge amounts of time and you build an audience and then it vanishes or or, dwe- or withers rather than vanishes. And therefore, I think it's really important, whatever you're doing, to have your own website with your own content sitting on your website. It's really useful for Google to be able to find you. It means you have a home for all of your stuff. And I think all of us need to be building up email mailing lists because email has been around for decades and shows very little sign of going away. So I think whatever the exciting temptation of TikTok videos are, I would really urge you to do some boring old stuff like put your stuff on your blog and build an email newsletter as well. Do you, do you, what do you think? Do you agree with that? Well, yes. And I want to talk about newsletters specifically because that's something I have a new book coming out and I need to better implement my own newsletter. So some of some of the advice I'm seeking is a little bit personal, but I'm curious to know if you find yourself getting a lot of messages from younger readers and your younger audience through platforms like Instagram rather than, than email. Like I've gotten the sense in the last two or three years that there's some people in their 20s who don't use email that much. And so they'll message me. If I'm not checking my Instagram messages, then I'm missing um, messages from people who've read my books. Yeah, that's definitely true. There's a lot of people getting in touch through more direct means. Absolutely. Um, Which is great in some ways. It means you are accessible to your audience. It also becomes difficult in some ways because you are so easy to reach. People can ask a lot with very little effort on mm. their behalf. So for example, I get a lot of messages on Instagram saying, yo, dude, love love your stuff. Please tell me everything I need to know for how to cycle around the world. Please <laughs> send me kit, kit list, route maps, visa information. <laughs> Cheers, boom, 20 seconds for them. If I engage with that, which I kind of want to because they're a nice, interested, curious person. But if I engage with that, that's 
half an hour of my day gone. So I think you have to put in some sort of boundaries yourself with how you're going to respond to these things. And what I tend to do is the questions I get asked a lot, rather than answer them to everyone, I write them as a blog post, I put them on my website, and then I have a frequently asked questions page. I can then share the links to those things for the questions that I get asked over and over again. Yeah, I've, I've done similar things over the years. Again, I think we're generationally similar. And by the time you get a question the 10th time, you it, it does become a blog post. I'm, I'm curious about these newsletters, though, uh, just because I have a pretty big um, subscriber list, but I never send newsletters. I never send them. And, I'm, and I have a book coming out in October, and I'm going to have to start using that again. Um, and I think you, you specify, uh, you make a joke in the book about the person who says, Hey, it's been a year since I sent a newsletter, but I have a book out, you know, and I'm, I'm going to sort of be that guy. Right. So, um, how would you using me as an example, you know, a guy with a new book out in October, how would I avoid being that sort of one-off newsletter guy who says, buy my stuff and create, a more interactive and useful newsletter that not only helps, actually helps promote my book, but also uh, delivers value to the people on that mailing list? Well, the first thing I'd say is that it's not necessarily a bad thing to be that guy who only sends one newsletter a year when you've written a book, so long as you're choosing to spend the rest of the year doing some useful stuff like writing that book. Hmm. So it's it's not the worst thing in the world. I mean, sending a huge email once a year, the algorithms won't like it. So you'll get more just dumped off into spam mail and junk mail than if you'd been doing it every week. But hey-ho, such is life. It's not the end of the world. If you're not interested in newsletters at all, it's fine. It's better than nothing. You've got a load of people on there. Email them once a year and say, I've got a book out. Great. That's not a bad thing. But if you are interested, I mean, if you if you buy into the idea that newsletters are the best way to get click-through rates, the best way to communicate with an audience who are choosing to accept you into their computer, into their work, into their, into their days, into their emails. If you're willing to do that, then you need to put a bit more effort into newsletters because newsletters have a fantastic click-through rate, you have a, which means that when people when you open an email, you're more likely to click on there and go to buy Rolf's book than if you see it on Facebook or something. So they're really useful for that. So in that sense, what I would suggest you then choose to do is ask yourself a question. Two questions. What problem do I have in my life? <laughs> one, one that's sort of relevant to the world you're in. Uh, so what problem do I have in my life? And also ask what problem do my audience have in life? And think about ways to solve those problems and start to send out more regular emails about that. And a very sim simple, but not quick, but simple way of doing that is by sending, what's become very popular these days, a, a list of curated links. Like, for example, Tim Ferriss, who I know you know well, he does his mm. five, five Bullet Friday and the general rule of the internet is that if Tim Ferriss is doing something for a long time, he's probably doing it for a clever and good reason. So he sends an email once a week with five useful links that he thinks his audience will be interested in. And you can bet your bottom dollar that when a new book comes out, he'll be saying, hey, P.S., buy my book. So how often you send those newsletters depends on how interested you are in all of this and how much time you have. But I would certainly suggest that it's worth an experiment in the build-up to your book is to send at least monthly, I send mine out every two weeks, 
a thing like that, priming people that the book's coming out and then hit them with the big boom. I've written my book, please buy it on the day of publication. But if all of that leaves you cold, then at least send the one out. At least keep collecting those email addresses and at least send out the one on book release day. Right. Yeah, it's a strange balance because sometimes I like newsletters, but I get them too much. Uh, yes. And then, then eventually I stop reading them and then I put them away. You know, um, Tim does so many things so well. I think he does a lot of testing with this stuff, but I actually read Five Bullet Friday because it's useful, you know. Um, so I guess I'm going to have to figure out how to, well, either I'll, either I'll be the one off my book is out, hello, goodbye, or I'll have to figure out uh, my own version of Five Bullet Friday, I guess. Yeah. And I mean, one thing you could, one thing I love doing is using Google Forms uh, to ask my audience to send them a quick form saying, hey, guys, how often do you want to get a newsletter? Mm-hmm. Uh, just a few little questions. What day of the week do you want to get my newsletter from? Um, and of course, you'll get thousands of totally conflicting different answers, but hopefully something useful will come from that. And what, what I found from my checking the, and analyzing my audience is that uh, people like my emails, they like once every week or once every two weeks. And my preference is that I, I'm the same as you. I don't like receiving too often. I think less is more. So I tend to send mine out every two to three weeks with the link, of, a use uh, a selection of links I hope will be useful for people. And then every so often it's um, what Gary, Gary Vinerchuk, he's, uh, he's written a really good book called Jab, 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 Right Hook, which is essentially saying uh, you give, you give, you give, give you give give people what they want and then boom every so often you can give them the right hook of hey i've given you all this stuff boom please buy my book Um, you build up some goodwill and then you ask for something in return and i think if you get the ratios right on that i think people are happy to receive the please buy my book email yeah it'll be an interesting experience I'm, i'm sure a number of people in my audience have signed up for an email but gotten nothing yet um, so, right, right, yeah. so, so, so this, well, I'll be I'll be on the list, I'm sure. Right, right. So that will be um, a real, I don't know, beta test, or or we'll we'll try it. But it's 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 something I'm thinking about, and so it was interesting that it was something you addressed. Are is newsletters are newsletters an important part of your overall brand, uh, or is it something you're still not 100 percent all in on? Well, I'm I'm glad you asked me that question because I. F- thought for a moment you're going to change subjects and i was going to say hey let me talk about newsletters a bit more right, uh, right. Be- because i've come to absolutely love newsletters hmm. um i one i i enjoy sending out links that i think will be useful for my audience and the feedback i receive from people suggests that people genuinely really appreciate it and of course if they don't they just click in unsubscribe they're gone and no one's no one needs to cry over that so i enjoy it that it feels like a useful thing to do uh, the click through rates are really good in terms of when i ask give people a call to action saying hey guys would you mind filling in this quick form for me or would you mind leaving a review of my book or would you mind buying my book i get much better response on newsletters than anywhere else hmm. but there's a whole extra world of newsletters and Please cut me off if I get too boring. <laughs> but there's a whole extra world of newsletters, which I completely love now, which is the world of um, automated email newsletter sequences, which I promise are more interesting than they sound. Mm-hmm. And we've all received these, even if you don't know, but you sign up to a newsletter and you get the, hey, thanks for joining my newsletter. And a week let- later, you get the next email, which says something like, oh, first thing you need to learn in this French cooking 
uh, newsletter is how to make onion soup. And then the week after that, they go, now you've made onion soup. Here's how to make sausage casserole. And they carry on like this. Um, and what's what I've I've written my last two books in exactly this way. Um, and what I like about it is I'm trying to solve a problem for an audience, which is how I go about choosing the book I'm going to write. I sit down and write, let's say, 50 different newsletters, which is basically like writing 50 chapters of a book. I upload them to the internet, schedule them, click, 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 and they just appear every week for a year. The audience keeps reading them as long as they're interested. If they're not interested, they click unsubscribe. And hopefully as they read through this, they really enjoy what I'm writing. They find it useful. And at some point along the line, they choose to buy the book. Um, which seems to be weirdly successful, even though I've given away all the content as a series of weekly emails. When that then turns into a book at an end, people seem to enjoy buying the actual book of the emails they've been receiving. So um, if if you have something that you can teach people in, say, five parts or ten parts, I'd really recommend experimenting with a, a newsletter sequence because it's very little work for long-term rewards. So if someone signs up to my newsletter today they don't get episode 420 they get episode one and the next week they get episode two and so you're constantly Hmm. welcoming in a new audience at the beginning it's a really really good way of efficiently telling your story and your newsletter service can automate that yes exactly yeah your newsletter so yes yeah the newsletter service just does all of that um, and it's very very easy even for an idiot like me to set up and and then this do the sequence emails do they also have a few like uh, real time emails uh, salted in so if you if someone is on email number eleven and suddenly you have a new book out are they going is it going to get wedged in before uh, number twelve or how does that work <laughs> no they, they they would be different they're different email groups essentially so mm-hmm. someone signs up for my. Uh, automated one i've got two ones called the doorstep mile and one's called the working adventurer depending on what people find interesting to them they sign up for one and that's just boom 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 they'll get them every week even if i've uh, exploded in a bomb disaster somewhere <laughs> they'll still be getting those whereas the the more timely ones that hey guys here are five interesting things i found this week tim ferris bullet friday or austin cleon's uh, 10 things he sends out. That's me choosing something that feels relevant to me and relevant to the world at that time. And then that goes out. And I, I, that's like a normal email. I type it, I write it, I check it, and I press click and it goes out to my audience. It, it's an interesting way to, to create and manage this information. And one interesting thing about your book, Ask an Adventure, is that you published it yourself. Um, and so I'm curious a little bit about that as well. Uh, you know, when we, when you and I were kids, self-publishing was called the vanity press. Mm. Uh, whereas now it seems like for some topics, it's a smart move. So why, why and when do you self-publish your books? So when I just, when I tried to write my first book, which was about cycling through Africa, I went out and I tried to find publishers like, Hey, I've done this brilliant thing. Who wants to publish my book? Nobody, because I hadn't done anything. No one knew about me, so zero interest, and I completely failed to find a publisher. It's a story I'm sure lots of uh, young adventurers will be familiar with. So I completely failed, and therefore feeling very sad and like a complete loser, I self-published my book because that was the only way to get it out into the world. Um, I did that. On the back of it, 
people read it, they liked it, and a publisher came along and said, hey, we'll publish your next book. So then my next series, my next bunch of books I wrote with a normal publisher, which is the standard deal of you write a book, they publish it and print it and put it in the shops, and you get a percentage royalty. And that's generally how the book trade, the book world has worked for hundreds of years. And if you're, if you're too much of a loser to succeed at that, you do the vanity publishing. Hmm. But move forward a few years, and now the technology is available whereby originally if you wanted to self-publish a book, you had to print a thousand copies, which then sat in your bedroom for years, like a burden of shame. And you gave them to all your friends for Christmas every year. These days, if you buy one copy of my book, one copy is printed somewhere and it is shipped out. And somehow technology means that that the economics of that add up. So there's no financial outlay now. So to self-publish, Ask an Adventurer, I wrote the book on my computer. You turn it into a format that looks like a nice book, as a PDF. You design a pretty little cover. Uh, you attach them to a website pretty much just like you'd attach to an email. You, pre- you choose what price the book's going to be. You press go. Boom. The book is available for anyone on the whole planet. And uh, f- f- when someone buys the book, let's say it costs $10, I get 60% of the profits, whereas mm. my traditionally published books, let's say they cost $10, at maximum I get 10%, often only 5% of the book price. So I get much more royalties. Um, I have an online social media audience which can do the marketing of my book with more passion and effort and drive than publishers bother to give to my books because I'm not a celebrity superstar. They don't really pay me much attention once the actual book is out there. Also, it's so much quicker. If you want, I've got a book coming out with a standard publisher uh, because I need help with the art side of it. So I'm doing it with the standard publisher. I've finished writing the book now in March 2022. It's not coming out till summer 2023. Wow. That's ridiculous. I'm doing another book myself right now, a kid's book, which I'm still writing, but I hope that will be out in the shops by June this year, say in three months' time. So it's so much quicker as well. So overall, then, I love the creative freedom, the speed of it. The royalties are much, much better. It's complete. It doesn't cost you anything to do. It's a total no-brainer if, and here's the very big if, if you have, first of all, done the work necessary to get sufficient of an interested audience who will actually buy your book. So if I if I didn't have any audience at all and I self-published a book, then it would sell nothing at all. Whereas if I did it with a publisher, I could at least hope that the publisher would do some marketing to get it to some of their audience and into some of their stores. So they're the rough pros and cons of the different ways of doing it. Yeah. You mentioned that uh, your traditional publisher, it involves the art. Like, uh, what What is your algorithm for choosing whether to self-publish versus to try and work through traditional publishers? Is it is it about the support they can add? Is it about the subject matter? Um, wh- what tips you one way or another? So um, there are lots of pros and cons of both. So I'm not saying what I'm saying isn't the definite right thing to do. Uh, I'd really recommend anyone who's interested in this looking at a website called Creative Pen. That's P E double N, um, and she knows everything about this world and is brilliant. So my decision these days essentially comes down to the creative freedom. Therefore, I do everything myself. And the only thing I would do with the publisher now, I'm doing a big hardback kids book. 
it's big and it's full of illustrations and that feels in many ways beyond the sort of stuff that I'm good at and therefore I've gone with a traditional publisher who make big hardback illustrated kids book but for any sort of book that just requires words on a page it will take a lot to persuade me to go to a real publisher these days hmm. Hmm. I mean they do sorry one other thing I didn't mention was of course there's the appeal of publishers that you get a you get an advance uh, and in the olden days you used to get huge advances they've dropped massively now unless you're a celebrity but an advance is quite useful in that if you can get one the publisher will give you a bunch of money up front which helps pay for your life whilst you're writing your book that money isn't a gift that's just a loan against future sales um but um so it doesn't necessarily make you more money overall, but if you if the advance cash might be useful for you to actually get the project done, that's something worth considering. Are books an important part of your platform, or is it possible to be an adventurer and just be a social media or newsletter guy? <laughs> books are a huge part of my platform in terms of what I love doing. So hmm. I really the writing books is really important to me, but I don't earn my I've written thirteen books now and I still couldn't earn my a living really from my Actually, I'm getting towards being able to scrape a living for my books, but they don't really make much money. I make most of my money, well, made most of my money for most of my years by giving talks about adventures to schools and events and businesses and giving those talks paid for life, which I could then spend writing. And over more recent years, as the influencer world has grown, I now get money from sponsors who maybe pay me for a year to be an ambassador or just pay me per campaign to do something for them briefly and advertise it briefly. But all of these things, personally, I do in order that I can write books because that is what I really enjoy doing. Well, presumably you have a book agent. Do you have a speaking agent? Yeah, I do have a book agent, although now I'm self-publishing. Uh, she doesn't really have much to do, uh, which is a shame. She's very nice. <laughs> uh, yeah, I also have a speaking agent um, who takes a percentage cut and sorts out all this stuff like fees and uh, contracts and all the stuff I find really boring and painful. Um, and I also, at the risk of making myself sound like a total diva, <laughs> I also have a, an agent to help with the brand work and the sponsorship work and the doing campaigns with companies. Um, some some agents would do all of those three roles, but for various reasons, I've ended up with um, three separate ones in my life. Hmm. Well, that, it, it's it's interesting to know that uh, it's good to ha- it's useful to have help with some of this stuff. It's not just you doing everything. Yeah, and I think what you have to do is choose what you're good at and choose what you like. So. I like self-publishing a book because I quite like having long arguments with someone about what font size we should use. Um, <laughs> I enjoy that side of things. But it's, what I hate is having a long argument with someone about how much money I should be paid for anything. I'm, I hate that. Hate it, hate it. And therefore, I'm quite happy to let an agent take a cut in order to solve the stuff that I'm rubbish at and to solve the stuff that I hate spending my days doing. I think you want to try and find a way to spend the days doing stuff that you are uniquely qualified to do and that you are good at and then delegate and pay someone else to do everything else, the stuff that they're good at. Hmm. Well, I know that uh, of, of the many skills you employ as an adventurer, one of them is uh, the need to pick up your kids from school, which is happening pretty soon. So, <laughs> so I'll, I'll wind it down. Um, maybe we can just end on 
if someone is listening to this and maybe they're 22 years old and they like the idea of being an adventurer, of, of maybe mixing a little bit of adventure with a, a little bit of income, is it worth a try? And what are the risks and rewards for such an undertaking? Oh, it's absolutely, definitely worth a try. I think probably the worst thing that will happen is you will go off, have a really big adventure. Uh, you'll tell some stories. Um, you'll build up some creative skills. You'll come home with no money and a lifetime of good memories. And then you'll you'll fail to actually earn a living from an event as being an adventurer and you'll go and get a normal job like the rest of the world does and you'll really enjoy that and you'll have a great life with these memories of your adventures so it's definitely worth taking a punt on it i think um i do also though think it's important to point out that before i started get the gamble of trying to become a working adventurer i did have a safety net in place of i got a decent education i had qualifications i trained to be a teacher so i knew that if i went off and cycled around the world and wrote my book and no one liked it i would be able to get a decent job and that's a privilege and a safety net that i think it's really important to hmm. flag up I, th I think too often adventurers like me say go follow your dreams if you work hard you will succeed without pointing out the, the good fortune um, of and the good planning of putting in some safety measures first. So maybe go and train to be a, a welder or an electrician or, or whatever it is you do, get some sort of useful skill which will pay for your life, do the adventures around the sides, tell the stories around the sides and have some sort of way to pay for your life until hopefully the day comes when you start to earn money from travel writing or whatever it is you love to do and you kick boring old Rolf and me out <laughs> into our retirement. This has been Deviate with Rolf Potts. More about everything that was just mentioned, including links to Alistair Humphrey's book, Ask an Adventurer, can be found in the show notes at rolfpotts.com slash deviate. And as always, you can contact me with insights or questions at deviate at rolfpotts.com. This episode was produced by Cedar Van Tassel, who also does the theme music. Thanks for listening, and I hope you tune in for future episodes of Deviate with Rolf Potts. Mm -hmm.